Thank you, Jack and Ricky and uh, those of you who are right now in the Mount Vernon Baptist Church sanctuary. That's just a few of us. Uh, everyone at home should know we are practicing safe social distancing here, scattered in this building, less than 10 of us. I thank all of you who have made this live stream possible. It really is remarkable. And uh, this is most unusual, isn't it? Uh, I almost don't even know what to say. Uh, I've had a number of pastors, uh, been in conversation with pastors this past week, and more than one has said, we just did not have a class in seminary on how to pastor through a pandemic. Uh, this is most unusual. Um, I thought about what should we do? Uh, how should we continue on through these weeks? Uh, I, I, I pray just a few weeks where we're not able to uh, be in one another's lives the way we want to be, as, as Pat mentioned a few moments ago. I thought, should I just keep preaching through the book of Acts, uh, just as if uh, we were all together? And uh, I decided not to do that. I want to save uh, Acts. I want to save the Philippian jailer until we're all back together in the same room and we can get back to uh, the business of gathering as a church. But for this season, as we are scattered it seemed wise to take advantage of the technology that we have uh, to bring to your living room, I presume, uh, a word of encouragement, some songs of encouragement that uh, I certainly pray God will use in your life, not, not simply to help you endure, but to really uh, equip you to be salt and light through a time that for many in the world is riddled with great anxiety. But as believers, we certainly do not need to be anxious. So for as long as we are scattered, uh, I intend to bring to you a few messages. Uh, you can be sure that they will be roughly the same length as the messages if you were in this room right now. You can also be sure that if you shut your eyes, while I'm talking, I won't know. Today, I want to speak about a prayer that each of us should have, a prayer for revival. It's a prayer that you saw in Psalm 85. So I, I trust that you've got a Bible nearby, that you'll open it up if it's not still opened to Psalm 85, as we think uh, this morning about this tremendous passage, and in particular, one verse in this passage. The coronavirus reminds us that this world is not our home, and we need reminders like this. It's too easy to settle in and to get comfortable. It's too easy to think that this world is our luxury home instead of a cheap motel. It's too easy to forget that we are exiles longing for heaven. Now, we can be thankful in that sense for this reminder. It's harder to close your eyes to God when the most basic operations of a civilized world are, are slowing down. And at the very least, we can all agree that these operations are slowing down for, for all of us. I hope that we feel a little bit like a bucket of cold water has been splashed on our face. We need to wake up and do some thinking and do some praying. Now, we are not the first generation to see extraordinary times. 
Uh, Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. A few months later, the Nazis took Paris and the British nearby grew very, very nervous. Hitler was knocking at their door. The city of London was being prepared for invasion and bombings. And at that time, parents sent their children away to live with friends and family in the countryside of England. And so if you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, that's why uh, the Pevensey kids uh, were off to spend time with their uncle. It was right during this time around World War II. Well, everything in the city started closing down. And in the midst of the nation's anxiety, uh, BBC Radio invited a college professor by the name of C.S. Lewis to broadcast some special talks on Christianity. And the nation tuned in because they were ready to listen. In the midst of troubled times when there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty about the future, well, that's when people tend to open up their ears and tune in even to the message of Christianity. Well, trials like the ones we're facing now are the jackhammer of the heart. They loosen rocky soil, so gospel seeds, which are being planted and which have been planted, can grow. When our hearts are soft, we are better prepared to see and feel and long for Jesus. When our hearts are softened by the jackhammer of trials in our lives, the Christianity that we tend to know intellectually becomes the Christianity that truly seeps in and even from our hearts. So how are you doing this morning? Is the jackhammer of the coronavirus softening your own heart during these extraordinary times? At a time like this, we are faced with many good questions. Will I lose my job? Is my retirement savings going to last? Can my body withstand getting sick? When can I play with my friends again? When will things get back to normal? Now, these are good questions, and it would be strange if you were not asking questions like these. And I don't have the answers for you. In fact, I feel a little bit like a literature teacher who's been asked to sub for a high school physics class. The kids are raising their hand, asking about general relativity and thermal energy, and I just don't have the answers to questions like that. What can I do? Well, I can try to get you to ask an even better question. So maybe just for a few minutes, while all these other questions are running through your mind, you'll, you'll hit pause and you'll allow yourself to think about a different question, a better and even more biblical question. It's a question that's found in Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Will you not revive us again? That's the question that I want you to wrestle with today. Now, what is Psalm 85 about? Well, in a nutshell, it is a Psalm about a people who need help. Something has gone terribly wrong. And you can see it in verse four. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. The people need restoration because something has broken them. They are in dire need 
they are facing a national catastrophe. Now, we don't know the nature of that catastrophe. Some suggest that this was written when the Philistines were attacking Israel during the reign of King David. Others have suggested this was written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when the people's exile had just ended and they'd returned back to the land. Uh, who knows, maybe this is a, a famine or even a plague. Either way, it's easy for us, especially right now, to relate to a national catastrophe. Here we are, God's people, scattered throughout the city, hunkered down in our homes, unable to gather together, fearful perhaps for our income, concerned about the future, battling isolation. Like the readers of Psalm 85, we need help. Now, one of the silliest things that you can ever do is refuse to see your own need for help. I know there are lots of children watching. Uh, are you the kind of kid who always wants to figure things out yourself? Are you the kind of kid who always likes to do it alone without help from your mom or your dad? If that is you, I know that it can feel really good to be independent and to be able to figure things out for yourself, but sometimes you just can't do it. Sometimes you have to get someone to help you open the peanut butter. Sometimes you simply have to get a tall parent to get something down for you from the tallest shelf. And you know, adults are like this too. Adults can be fiercely independent as well. And in fact, maybe you are too embarrassed to tell somebody right now that you need help. Well, Psalm 85 is a good reminder of just how silly that is, how silly that, that posture is. Whether we're children or adults, we're all supposed to recognize that we are fragile, finite creatures, unable to truly help ourselves. We need a hand. We need help. And that's what Psalm 85 is, is about. So we are in the midst of a global pandemic. It's disrupted all of our lives. It has shut down our, our gatherings. And maybe that is making you anxious and afraid. Well, it's okay to admit that. It's good to tell someone how you're feeling. It's even better to cry out to the Lord for help. And it's why the psalmist prayed, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? As the jackhammer of some national catastrophe pounded away at the psalmist's heart, he prayed to God for help. Now I want you to think for a moment about what it would be like for God to revive your heart. What does revival look like? for our church? What does revival look like for your own personal Christian discipleship? Well, I want to answer that question, but first I want you to see that verse 6 really is a remarkable prayer. And it's remarkable because one of the things that should be quite obvious is that only something that is already alive can be revived. In order to be made alive again, you've got to first be alive in the first place. This is a prayer for people who know themselves to be saved. And in that sense, this is a prayer for God's people. 
It's a prayer for the church. Look at verses 1 through 3. Notice all the things the psalmist knows God had already done for them. God restored their fortunes. God forgave their iniquities. God covered all their sins. God withdrew his wrath. God turned away his anger. And this is a long list of the many, many ways God had been good and kind to them. And that's where the psalm begins. In the midst of a national crisis, they remember how good God has been to them. Even when they didn't deserve it, God forgave them. It's a good reminder for us to be thankful for all the good that God has done to each of us. I'd like to speak to the kids again for a moment. Can you think of a time when you really, really deserved to be punished, but instead of punishment, your mom or your dad simply forgave you? I know sometimes, maybe often, they punish you to, to teach you the importance of obedience, the importance of honoring your mom and your dad and honoring the Lord who made you. But I know that there are other times when your parents did not give you what, they, what you deserved. They simply forgave you. Well, that's how Psalm 85 begins, with a reminder of how gracious God has been to his children. And verse 6 is a prayer for those who have been forgiven, for those who have already been given life. They have already received a, an overwhelming sense of God's forgiveness, mercy, and, and grace. And really, that's what revival is. Revival is renewing and, and refreshing the sense of God's goodness, God's compassion, God's mercy and grace and forgiveness in your life. Right? To be revived, to experience revival, is when God's mercy and grace and forgiveness flood your heart anew and afresh. It's a fresh work of God among his people. Right? That's what revival is. Now, there's another thing about this prayer that really, really is remarkable. Notice that the psalmist doesn't pray for the trial to end. He never says, God, take away the Philistines, or God, please bring rain, or God, please take away this pestilence or plague, or again, whatever the particular catastrophe was that hammered the nation. And those would be fine prayers. I, I trust that that you are all praying that, that God would squash this virus quickly. Right? That's, a, that's a good prayer. It's just not the prayer the psalmist recorded here. No, no, no. The psalmist doesn't care, at least right now, about his physical health. He cares about his spiritual health. Right. What the psalmist cares about now is, is not his body. He cares about his soul. What the psalmist cares about here is, is not his relationship with the land, but about his relationship with the Lord. Now, maybe this seems rather strange to you, but I think, honestly, that we can all understand it. So what if you took your friend's car out for a drive without asking him? And then, just suppose you, you weren't paying attention, 
and you veered off the road and slammed into a tree. Now, thankfully, you weren't going very fast at all, but the car is still wrecked and you've got a few minor bumps and bruises. But what's on your mind, at least at first, is not your bumps and your bruises, not even your friend's car. Your first thought is about your friendship. What will your friend think about you borrowing that car without asking? What will he think about you? Will he still be your friend? In other words, in the midst of your trial, you are less concerned about your body and more concerned about your friendship. Well, way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam stole and wrecked God's car. And ever since then, this world is not what it should be. Because of that one act of rebellion, an act of rebellion, by the way, that you and I would surely have committed were we in Adam's place. Because of that one act of rebellion, we all have to live with cancer and foreclosures, with poverty and tornadoes, with wars, and yes, with the coronavirus. But as Christians, when these trials come our way, our main concern isn't how quickly the trial is going to end any more than that driver's main concern was how he was going to get out of that car. No, our main concern, our chief concern, what's on our heart more than anything else is our own relationship with God. Now, I need to point out where our illustration fails us. You see, because God is God, he, he knows about the crash already, and he is going to use that crash for our own spiritual good. So I need to say something about Christianity that is very difficult for the non-Christian to understand. Here it is. Believers embrace every trial including the coronavirus, as the discipline of our loving Father, who is strengthening us to better glorify Him. And God does this by using our trials to reveal the sin and the ugliness inside our own hearts. Now go back to Psalm 85. Look at verses 4 and 5. The people are not innocent, and so God is angry. Somehow they have sinned against him, and it's not that they did something specific to deserve this particular national catastrophe. No, this trial is a reminder that they are a, a sinful people living in the, the wake of that very first fall. Look at verse 6. The people are not rejoicing the way they should be rejoicing. They have forgotten God's goodness to them. Look at verse 8. There is folly. There is foolishness in their lives. Whatever the trial of Psalm 85 was, God used it to reveal the, the folly, the, the foolishness of their own sin, of the sin in their hearts. The people had been driving along in a borrowed car, but when that car crashed, all of a sudden it brought to their minds the many ways they had fallen short. The trial 
brought their sin out into the open. Let me give you another illustration. Let me paint another picture. I once needed to get some furniture for my apartment many years ago. A coworker gave me his coffee table. Uh, it was an old coffee table and it needed a lot of work. It needed to be refinished. So I went to the hardware store and I purchased a compound strong enough to take off the paint so I could refinish the table. I opened the jar of this compound. I carefully applied it to the surface of the coffee table and I just as carefully scraped off the paint until I could see the wood beneath. Well, trials are like that compound in the hands of a holy God. Carefully applied by the Lord, they reveal our hearts. They show us our sin. They uncover our folly. And when we see ourselves rightly, we are ready finally to ask the most important question of all. God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? We pray for revival. We ask God to flood our hearts with greater degrees of compassion and mercy and forgiveness and grace. We see this in the Bible, this need for revival in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus headed to Gethsemane. He wants to get away from everyone so that he can pray. He takes Peter and James and John aside with him and he tells them to keep watch and to stay awake. And when he comes back, he finds them asleep, sound asleep. Jesus rebukes them in Matthew 26, verse 40. Jesus says, so could you not watch with me one hour? They fell asleep until Jesus revived them with a stern rebuke. Brothers and sisters, family, I, I don't know why the coronavirus is, is hitting the world right now. I don't know why it's hitting us right now. But I believe the virus is in the hands of a holy and of a loving God who is carefully applying it to his church, a church that has fallen asleep. How have we fallen asleep? Perhaps by taking some of the most important things in life for granted. So let me ask you a few questions. They probably don't apply to all of you, but I trust at least one of them applies to all of us. Have you taken the gospel for granted by failing to share it the way you should? Have you taken the gospel for granted by failing to apply it to your own life every day? Have you taken the Bible for granted by failing to meditate on God's word day and night? Have you taken the Bible for granted by failing to share with others what the Holy Spirit has been teaching you through God's word? Have you taken the church for granted by failing to appreciate the privilege we have of gathering? Have you taken the church for granted by refusing to be involved the way that you should? 
Have you taken others for granted by failing to disciple others? Have you taken others for granted by failing to use words to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ? I loved Pat's uh, exhortation a few minutes ago at Mount Vernon. We're constantly talking about discipling one another personally and regularly. Well, we can't do it personally now, but we can still do it. Have you taken the Lord for granted by failing to remember the future is in God's hands? Never has James 4.13 been more clear to me than it is right now. Have you taken the Lord for granted by failing to receive each day from him as a special gift? Easter is right around the corner and churches were preparing to invite millions into their sanctuaries to hear the gospel. Well, could it be that God has locked the doors of his church because like those disciples outside the Garden of Gethsemane, the church has fallen asleep and is in desperate need of revival? I think of Paul's warning to the church in Thessalonica. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be, be sober. Before you know it, this pandemic will be over and the church doors will be open again. On that day, I do not want to be the same man that I am today. I want to be a man the, the Lord has revived. I want to be a man the Lord has changed, that the Lord has sanctified. I want to be a, a pastor the Lord has revived. I want to be changed. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better neighbor, a better friend. I want to be a better shepherd. And that's only going to happen if I am overwhelmed by a renewed sense of the Lord's compassion and mercy and grace for me. I need revival. Our church needs revival. Well, let's assume that you want to change, that you're, you're right with me. Let's assume we're in the same boat, that we all want to change. Let's say that God is, in fact, revealing sin in our hearts, sin that we don't like, that we want to see removed. Let's assume that, that you see your own need for revival. Well, how does revival come? How does this happen? We can't hold a revival, right? We can't schedule it. We can't plan for revival, right? Re revival comes from the Lord. It's why the psalmist is praying in verse 6, will you not revive us again, right? It is God who visits his church with revival, with a renewed sense of mercy and of compassion and of forgiveness and of, of grace. Revival comes through him. It's not something we can plan. It's not something we can schedule. There is nothing more helpless than a newborn baby crying out to his mother for milk. Life-giving milk. Only mom can help. Only mom can give that baby what that baby so desperately needs. And here we are in a similar position. Our nation has been brought to its knees. The doors of our churches have been closed. Can you believe that I'm saying that? The doors of our churches have been closed. 
We are now more than ever like newborn babies in need of life-giving milk. Where does our help come from? Where does our life come from? Where does revival come from? It comes from God. I can't help but wonder if God shut down the church, if he put an end to all of our programs, if he brought to nothing all of our beautiful church buildings that no one can sit in right now, I can't help but wonder if God is locking these doors so that he can prove that he is the giver of life. He is the bringer of revival. Salvation comes when his spirit blows through his people, not through our planning, not through our ingenuity, not through our slick brochures, not through our careful planning. Revival comes from God. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones knew this well. He called his church to pray for revival. In 1959, a hundred years after the great revival that spread through America and England and Wales, the need for revival is just as great today. Listen carefully to his exhortation. We must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need. We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves and in all our methods and organizations and in all our slickness. We have got to realize that we must be filled with God's Spirit, and we must be equally certain that God can fill us with His Spirit. We need a power that can enter into the souls of men and break them and smash them and humble them and then make them anew. And that is the power of the living God. Revival comes from God. But that's not all. Revival comes from God through the cross of Christ. This is something many Christians forget. So often they think of the cross as a message they need in order to get saved. They forget it's the message of the cross they need for revival. They think that once they got a little older in the faith, they can move on to Christian ethics and apologetics and studies in church history. And all of this is good to study. I love to study all of these things. All of this is important to study. But here's the problem. Revival won't come through apologetics or through Christian ethics or through studies in church history. The waters of revival throw, flow through one river the river of the cross of Christ. Of course, the author of Psalm 85 never heard of the cross of Christ. He ministered centuries before the birth of God the Son incarnate, but somehow he knew that for revival to come, God would have to work in an extraordinary way. Look at Psalm 85, verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Where do we see God's love? We see it in the Savior who gave up his life 
for rebels like us. Where do we see God's faithfulness? We see it in a Savior, true to his word, a Savior who fulfilled all the Old Testament promises by becoming the final sacrifice for our sins. Where do we see God's righteousness? We see it in a Savior whose heart never grew cold to his Father, who perfectly obeyed all of his Father's commands, even the command to walk the path to the cross. Where do we see God's peace? We see it in a Savior whose death reconciled us to God, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between man and whose work on that cross means we are now sons and daughters of God. How does revival come? It comes from God. It comes through the cross of Christ. I started this message with a bunch of questions, questions that I don't have the answers to. I, I don't know when the kids will be back in school. I don't know when the days of social distancing are going to be in the rearview mirror. I don't know when we'll gather again. I don't know how many lives the coronavirus will take. I have no answers to these questions. But I have a better question. It's from Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? If you are not a Christian, you cannot be revived. By definition, you cannot be revived. You need life. For the first time ever, you need to live. And this life is a gift from God. And he will give it to you if you turn to him. It wouldn't surprise me to find out one day that God shut down the world so sinners like you could find life in Christ and in Christ alone. Humble yourself. Trust him. I mentioned at the beginning of my message C.S. Lewis, who delivered some wartime broadcasts to England. At the end of one of his messages, he spoke about our need for Christ and of the great and wonderful things that come from turning to Christ, he issued this plea. Here, listen to what he said. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Look for Christ, and you'll get him, and with him everything else thrown in. Look to yourself, and you'll get only hatred, loneliness, despair, and ruin. If you've never made Christ your home, you can do that today. You can turn to him even now and trust him and embrace all the good promises of everlasting life and forgiveness from sin that are only found in our perfect, merciful, all-powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, well, today is a day for revival. Today is a day for you to examine your own heart, 
to think about the ways in your life that you have fallen asleep. To think not merely about yourself, but to think about our church. How will Mount Vernon Baptist Church look differently when the doors, Lord willing, are opened once again? Revive us, O God. Why don't you take a few moments now to consider some of the things that I just spoke to you in this odd environment, speaking to you through a camera, but spend a few moments now reflecting on what I've just said, and then let me pray. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we praise you, and we love you. We know that you are our God, and that you reign perfectly. We know, as so many Christians have said in the past, that nothing takes you by surprise. We know that you are the author of salvation. We know that you are the one who disciplines your children. You uncover sin in our lives, and you revive our hearts. And we pray that you would do that in our lives today. Father, we do not want this extraordinary season to go to waste. We want to use it for self-reflection, for self-examination. We want to use this season to renew relationships with people in our lives who might even now be in need of our help. We want to use this season to be the kind of people, or perhaps to become for the very first time, the kind of people who are willing to ask for help. Father, if there are those who are listening, those who are watching, who have never repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ, would you work in their hearts now that they might trust Jesus, profess him to be Lord and Savior for the very first time. God, for those of us who do know you, revive our hearts, O Lord. We want to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds, and we pray that today would be a day of great rejoicing. Even as we can't see one another, we know that you see us, that you know us, and you are at work in our lives for our good, for your glory. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.